Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, Today's guest is Sarah Rader Wexler, who is a comedian based out here in the L.A. area. Um, And she shares with us uh, stories about cutting herself, uh, self-harming. Uh, if any of you out there who self-harm in any kind of way, or if you've cut yourself, you definitely want to tune in for this one. She talks about um, coping with her mom, with her parents' divorce as a child and what she wished they would have said to her and shared with her. She talks about uh, being on Adderall and how that led to an eating disorder. Um, she also talks about why she is Prozac for life. That's right. And how cognitive behavioral therapy helps her to get out of bed in the morning. Then we also get into the key to happiness. Oh, this was fascinating. I, I have always alluded to this in previous episodes, but the way she articulates uh, the key to happiness, I thought was really beautiful. And then we also talk about how to deal with abandonment issues in relationships. So we got a lot in this episode and uh, I'm excited to jump into it, welcome Sarah Rader Wexler. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me all right now? Oh, yeah, that sound is so much better. Okay, awesome. <laughs> oh, Leo, happy. You know, and if my dog, if you remember, is named Leo, the one making all the noise, and there's only room for one Leo on this podcast. There's only room for one. That's right. <laughs> my ego is massive. <laughs> massive and fragile. It is. It, it, I mean, it's it's really why I'm on this pod. I just went for a walk today, and uh, I have long COVID. And so oh. it's like I can't even go for a long walk anymore without grabbing an inhaler. So I'm super fragile. Right oh, now. well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That's a good reason to be fragile. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you feel fragile in any area of your life right now? Oh, for sure. I'm just a fragile flower all around. Um, it, it's it's funny because, you know, as a performing artist, I think there is some inherent fragility there in order to be even uh, acceptable at your craft because you have to be, you have to access that vulnerability. And for me, that comes from the same place of, of being fragile and... Um, Definitely have all sorts of imposter syndrome and whatnot. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on because, you know, we met just a few days ago at the Laugh Factory and I really Mm -hmm. enjoyed your set. And, you know, listening in, you know, I heard you talking about you had this very funny (laughs) joke about uh, uh, cutting yourself. And and the audience was like, ooh, and you're like, don't worry, I don't cut myself on my arms. I cut myself on on my legs like a lady or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and I was like, ooh, guess for the podcast. And yes. <laughs> you're like, oh, she sounds so so sad. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh yeah, she sounds fragile. She sounds fragile. Okay, yeah. all right. But um, but you know what? I also loved is you know what's beautiful about fragility is I find that it also comes with strength in a lot of people, and I felt like you exuded an ownership over the fragility and over the you know whatever your personal challenges are versus 
uh, kind of having this uh, purely victim uh, mind state. Uh, do you feel like that about yourself or do you, do you feel like uh, it's, it's a mixture of both? Oh, yeah. I mean, my like formal mental health journey really started almost a decade ago. And from where I came at that point, when I was about 18, 19 years old, to now, it's a major transformation. I, I certainly am not done with my journey, but before I used to feel really robbed of myself and of life and my potential because of whether it's diagnoses or just like a lack of ability to access the parts of myself that I really loved before. And I kind of started defining myself as, as a depressed person, as a person who used to be so full of vitality and now has deflated. And it took a long time for me to one, uh, extract my identity from achievement and then realize what, what am I left with when I, when all of those accolades go away and how do I get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other and uh, look at myself and say, that's someone who I'm proud to be, or I'm okay living this life as this person. Um, and I definitely feel like I'm, I've gotten much closer to uh, a healthy point in regards to all of that to the point where now I can laugh really hard about how sad, but also confusing and ridiculous and absurd that struggle was. When did the self-cutting start for you? Freshman year of college. T take us through that, because usually when I think of uh, self-cutting, I usually tend to think of middle school or, you know, nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> not not college you're a late bloomer in, in a, in a I, know. <laughs> I know I am I am you know delayed achievement um what would happen is I would get into really really big fights with my boyfriend at the time and the fights were never about anything like foundational to our character you know when you're at that age Things can get volatile based off of just like really minor interactions. And I think one of the reasons things would get volatile is because I, I had so much inner turmoil and I would come home from those fights just at like such a heightened emotional place that I would go into the bathroom and cut um, and inflict pain on myself as like, almost a release or like a come down or a way to feel things that weren't just inside um, that I didn't know how to explain or address. So, so that, that tells me then that there were things going on even before college that you were struggling with. Cause I hear you talking about inner turmoil and, and, mm -hmm. and being able to access parts of yourself that, that mm -hmm. you just loved. Um, and, and I know that you come from a mixed background. Can you speak more to that? And did that contribute to the inner turmoil or what were the contributing factors to that? Yeah. Um, so up until I was 13, I had been born and raised in Los Angeles, had this amazing support system came from, um, I went to Los Angeles Unified School District uh, school. So, you know, very, very diverse people from all walks of life, whether it's ethnically, racially, socioeconomically. Um, 
And then for my mom's career, um, she decided to move my whole family, which was at the time me, my younger sister, my dad and herself to Kansas, um, a Kansas suburb of Kansas City. And all of a sudden, my support group was gone. And that's so important, I think, for anyone at that age. And I think I can only speak to like the young woman's experience, but very much so for a young woman. Um, I became a token all of a sudden, not just racially, but religiously, um, because I'm Jewish. Um, and then about a year into my mom, you know, moving us to Kansas and which was as a family unit, my mom came out of the closet and left our, my dad and like left the family. And I felt like there was such an intense lack of justice in how she carried it out. I was raised better than to um, be like, to not like her for being gay. I grew up around gay people my whole life in Los Angeles. My, um, my dad and my mom met in theater. Like that's, that's built on the strength of the, of the gay people. Um, and, uh, but I felt like she moved us away from one, a place where, where, gay rights and were, were way more accepted. Gay people were way more accepted. Mixed families were way more accepted. She moved us away from our support system because even without the gay thing, a divorce is really hard for an adolescent kid. And then the feeling that like my mom chose this kind of like late term coming of age story over being a mom, you know? And so, and so all of that was happening and also, I should mention in Los Angeles, I was really into the performing arts. Like that was my passion. That's what I wanted to do. And I was just getting to an age where I could start exploring that in a more real sense, like besides like, you know, bad community, like school plays and stuff. Um, and in Kansas, that was not cool to do. It was a sports first town. I am not athletically gifted, never have been. Um, I get that from my dad's side of the family. And so I also then suppressed my performing arts side and, and decided, okay, I'm going to be an academic because everyone else has a sport, like has this one central thing that they hang their hat to. I am, I'm the soccer person. I'm the pole vaulting person. So I'm going to be the smart person. And my whole identity got tied up into being a really high achieving student. Um, and so I think that's where some of the anxiety started falling into the place, started some of like the self-loathing because I I had wished that, you know, I I knew country music and that I was a cheerleader and that I knew all of these things. Like I wanted to assimilate. And I you and I joked around, but it's true. I went so far as to become like to identifying as extremely Republican. Um almost as a way to cope with all of this, like to rebel, I think, against my mom too. Um, I started a, like a young Patriots club at my high school. Like I was, I was like, the tea party is lit. <laughs> I went full throttle from age like 13 to 18. And then when I got to college, you know, as many people do, you're just like, oh. <laughs> um, and so I think I was really able to be hyper-focused academically. And when you're able to be hyper-focused, I think you're sometimes able to not look introspectively at your own struggle. 
And then when I got to college and there was no longer this one goal, because the goal was for me to get a full ride to a good school. And then I got that. And then I got there. I didn't care for my class. Like business classes for me personally weren't inspiring. Um, And that's what I studied. And then I started spinning out. Yeah. So beforehand, was there any drugs involved? Because I would imagine a divorce, change of location, loss of support. Um, was there any drinking, alcohol, weed, prescription? Yeah, uh, funny you should say. That. So I should also say my mom went to residency for psychiatry. That's why we moved to Kansas. So she's a psychiatrist, and there's it's really interesting having a fraught relationship with your mom, who is a specialized child and adolescent psychiatrist, and helps so many people. Her patients love her. And you feel so misunderstood or unheard or unvalidated. So that was also a whole thing. Funny you should say that. While all of my friends started drinking really early on in high school and like smoking weed and stuff, I really did not take part in that until much later in high school um, because I, I was like an academic person doesn't do this stuff. But I did abuse, though, and I think a lot of high-achieving kids can uh, attest to this, was Adderall. I was pulling 36 hour days starting at 16 years old to get ready for tests, um, which is crazy, which is a crazy amount of pressure to put yourself, to put on yourself when like you're taking like a, an American history test. <laughs> so, okay. So I just watched a documentary on, uh, I think it wasn't specifically on, I mean, it was on Adderall. But it was about kids who are high achieving, taking these drugs to stay up late so they can study. And I think they covered high school and college kids. Mm -hmm. And they were just talking about like how accessible it is and and how much is, you know, how much is being made on a black market. Um, What were, were there any side effects to you taking the Adderall? And, And how difficult was it for you to get off if you are off of the Adderall? So I am off. I'll just start there. I haven't taken Adderall in quite some time, years. Um, One, I think it really contributed to some disordered eating because as I was taking so much Adderall, I was losing a lot of weight because you're not hungry. And when you're taking at the rate that I was, you know, 20 milligrams extended release, like that is firing through your body all day. So I went from being like, 115 pounds to 98 pounds in the course of like a handful of months when this started getting really intense. And I remember, um, because I lived with my dad and my sister at the time, my dad's not much of a cook. We would go out to dinner every single night. Usually that's how we ate dinner. And I started saying, I have too much to study for you guys go out to dinner. I'll make food here. But then I just wouldn't eat. Um, and so I started getting really, really thin Um, I started getting sick more often, like having to like, not like miss school because I I physically couldn't go. Um, I would say that I was like, also like hyper promiscuous as a kid. And I think that was like related to like my parents' divorce. And when I say kid, a teenager, um, and, and then when I did start drinking, like at, at like 17, Drinking and Adderall just don't mix well. And I did have a I did have to ultimately one day go to the hospital for 
blood alcohol poisoning after one of those 36 hour periods where I'd stayed up to study for AP tests. We were all going to party afterwards and that didn't end well. So, and I think all of this kind of hinted at an underlying depression, but it wasn't for a few, a couple more years that I was formally diagnosed with major depression. So once you were admitted for the, uh, you know, the Adderall, was that, is that how you got off or did that require a process? Was it easy for you to, to quit cold Turkey or did you have to go through therapy and. No, I mean, I, it became so common use that in college, everybody was using it. It was known that everyone had a hookup. So I, I used it through college, not to the same extent that I was in high school, but I did use it in college. I had kind of, I don't, I don't know what the proper term is at this point, like whether you want to call it like a major episode or a nervous breakdown, but my, at the end of my first semester of my junior year, I just became like unable to function. Like hygiene wasn't a thing. Going to class wasn't a thing. I had thousands of dollars in parking tickets because I wouldn't get up to move my car, put money in the meter, like real, like taking, taking a shower would like idea of it would make me cry. And so I had to drop out of that semester because I'd let every with a medical withdrawal. And this was when I started feeling like my mom was seeing the extent to how much I was suffering. And also her doctor acumen started coming into play. And she was like, I think we need to put you in a program um, because you've been in therapy and you've on and off antidepressants and stuff. And that hasn't worked. So they pulled me out of school and then I went into an intensive outpatient program, group therapy for nine hours a week and they drug tested. And so that was when I really, I was able to stop pretty cold turkey because like my achievement, my achievement issues, I have a problem like disappointing authority so that there was a test that I had to pass. Like I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to pass this test. I'm not going to get in trouble for drugs. Um, and so that's when I stopped. And I also at that time um, stopped smoking weed for the first time in like a couple of years. I had been like a daily weed smoker as like my come down kind of um, drug of choice. So with the Adderall, it sounds like the Adderall then also required you to smoke weed to kind of come down off the Adderall so that you can get asleep, so that you can sleep when you decided mm -hmm. to. So it, it, it becomes a gateway to another drug then. Right, right, exactly. And both of those two drugs in particular are so normalized. At least they were, I went to a big 10 school. They were both everywhere. No one thought you had a problem if you were taking Adderall or weed. That wasn't something that, I was also in a sorority. Every, almost everyone I knew was partaking in one or both of those to some extent. And so you're almost like in this drug echo chamber where you don't realize that something could be problematic. Yeah, I, I have this, uh, not joke, but this theory that like, you know, if you are, you know, depending on your financial situation, you're either going to go towards, you know, like weed, caffeine and sugar or ambient Adderall and um, Ativan. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's like those are the, the, the three on either side. How did your sister handle and, and cope with this? Like what's, what, uh, what's the age difference between you two? And did you see similar um, behaviors in her? So we are a little less than two years apart. So very close in age. Um, 
she, it's funny. I was describing her recently to someone as like when people who know me meet Whitney, that's her name. Um, people ask me, how come I'm not as fun as her? Like she has like this really, really easy, gracious and generous personality, really, really funny and quick in a way where I'm way more cerebral and intense and like, I don't know, paranoid or self-conscious. I don't know exactly what the words are, but she's, she's always been much more happy-go-lucky, uh, than I have been. Um, she wasn't a high achieving student. She always like said, like, I don't want to be, this is a choice that I'm making. I don't care. Um, she was actually prescribed Adderall. And so I would like army crawl into her room while she was sleeping and like skim off of her pills in high school. Um, she like has never gone through depression has like has a therapist because she like I don't know we're a family with a psychiatrist for a mom we just all have therapists but she's never been formally diagnosed with any personality or mood disorder she's certainly never shown depression in any ways that I've it's manifested in me um yeah and and she kind of jokes that her not being this super scholarly person allows her to be happier um, she doesn't have to go that deep and she likes it that way. Um, so in that regards, like we're, we're night and day, we're night and day. She, she just didn't go through it. Now I won't, I won't speak to, you know, my assessment on issues that she may or may not have otherwise. Um, nobody's perfect, but she, she certainly like had a much easier time navigating school, got through in four years, like never like how to drop out um yeah she she's she's the easier one so far and, and I, I completely hear what you're saying where like i i love my mom because she has she has this childlike quality about her where every day is is almost like the, her first day where she's like is that a flower and like she's never <laughs> seen a flower before and like she literally stops to smell things and look at the moon and and i'm like when I see a flower, I'm like, what kind of flower is that? I'm going to go Google that when I get home. Right. And then I'm like, down is, yeah. Head. And then I'm like, what's the history of flowers? How are flowers used? And mm -hmm. why do we deliver flowers on Valentine's Day? Why not? On, like, it, it, like, yeah, like I'm reading a book, Guns, Germs, and Steel right now because I want to understand school shootings. And it's like, mm. that's how far back I want to go. Um, so, so, yeah, I completely understand that. What, when you, going back, when you talked about your mom, um, you know, wanting to be seen and heard and validated. What is the conversation that you wished your mom had with you that may have made her deciding to be in another relationship? How would that, how would you have wanted that conversation to go? Do you think? Oh, so first, I think, so my whole family, we're extremely performative people. And sometimes I think we like to make a moment out of something at the cost of like considering taking the empathetic road. Um, my mom left a letter on my dad's dresser and then just didn't come home for a while. And 
So for me, first it was like, okay, you wanted this moment, like this cinematic moment. You couldn't like, you didn't take what might've been the harder road for you, but like to give the due respect to sit, sit this down so we could all process it together. So you processed it on your own and then said, y'all have fun with it. That's how I felt at the time. And what the conversation I always wanted her to hear, and she wouldn't hear it because she was going through her own, I don't know if crisis is the right word, but she was going through something on her own too, that she was processing. And what I wanted her to hear was, it hurts me that you made dad and me and Whitney leave our life when you knew that this was something that you're going to have to confront eventually. And you waited until we were isolated to do that. And she couldn't hear that. I don't know if she still can hear that. I've just gotten to a point where I can accept the flaws of my parents much better than I could before. Um, but really, I think I just wanted her to say that was my bad and I made a mistake and I'm sorry. And I have no doubt that that affected you or continues to affect you. Um, and that's hard because I'm under no delusion that I'm owed anything in this life at this point. I, I, I've come to that point where I know that and, and having a gay mom who moves you to Kansas City and but having two parents who love you very much and growing up economically stable, like I have it. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm I'm happy with who I am and where I am, and I feel fortunate in almost every aspect. Um, but I, yeah, I just wish she could have showed some contrition for the way she handled it and empathize with how hard it was for me. And what about for your dad? What is the conversation that maybe you wish your dad would have had with you? So. I, I have, I'm such like a daddy's girl. Like my dad and I became, we're always really, really close. Like from when I was really, really young and we only got closer as a result of all of this. Um, and I was adamant that I didn't want to live with her. And so that was a whole thing legally that we had to deal with. Um, my dad never showed anger at her. when. I even talked to her, talked to him that first time about her after she had told me she was gay, which I had a feeling by the way. So it wasn't like completely a shock that she was gay. It was more just like, she's gone now. Um, and I said, are you mad at her for being gay? And she, and he said, and I'll never forget, Sarah, if I was a woman, I'd be gay because I find the male form charmless. So no, I'm not mad at her for being gay. And he kind of kept it very light in that regard. He also just close to me as an adult, seeing me so angry made it a lot easier for him to not be angry because he knew that he didn't need that. He didn't need to show that for that to be in the air. And instead he wanted to help me through that anger um, and not add to it. And my dad also himself had a really hard relationship with his mom and it never was resolved till the day she died and she's gone now. And my dad still has a lot of resentment. And I think he recognized that that's a burden that he carries, not that she carried. Um, and he didn't want me to carry that 
as well. And he, he would always, he, he would always remind me like you have one mom and I think the right choice is to build a strong relationship as you can with her. However, you can do that while keeping yourself healthy. Um, and so th- I, I never really felt like there was anything that went unsaid. Honestly, if my dad has any flaws, he probably, he had probably disclosed too much. I was probably too aware of everything. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Yeah, I felt like that growing up also where I, I knew too much. So then I became hyper aware of all the, the of all what, what all the, the, the struggles and the challenges and issues were in the family. Um, yeah. I would imagine then, you know, because you had a or you, you felt like you had a sister who was just kind of happy go lucky. And then you have a dad who is using humor or. Um, you know, trying to play the role of a stoic kind of to deal with this, that then you feel all alone in your emotions. And and that has to be kind of a, a crappy place to be as, as a kid, right? Yeah, definitely. And I didn't tell my friends that my mom was gay for a long time. I, they just knew my family, my parents were going through a divorce, but I was so scared I was already the Jewish one. I was like, they, half of them already think I'm going to hell. I can't add more hell to their perception of me. <laughs> I just can't handle it. Um, because my values were such that if they said like, I'm, oh, I think your mom is bad because she's gay. Like I would have to end that friendship. I didn't want to know if they had those opinions or not because I wanted friends and I wanted acceptance in middle school and high school. Um, and so that was isolating as well to not be able to tell people why this was particularly tough for me. And when you're 13 and coming into your own sexuality or just beginning to, you all of a sudden, your parents' sexuality is different than what you've always assumed it to be. You have all of these questions and and really none of the uh information to know how to answer them so it, it, it was it was it was just a lot I was like does this mean I'm gay like does this like it just it really it really threw me for a loop and it wasn't one of those things that I could have a sleepover with my friends and talk to over Swedish fish into the middle of the night I didn't feel like I could have one of those you know coming of age moments um and I think I probably and I, there's no way to tell but in LA all of my friends knew because like the, I told all of them and most of them thought it was cool, like if anything. And so, but we were growing apart because like major changes were happening in our lives and not together. Um, so it was definitely really isolating. And I think that's one of the reasons why I became really, really boy crazy. Kind of like to overcompensate or to, or maybe even mm-hmm. to find out, like, let's test the waters and see what happens. That and like my parents had an unaffectionate relationship for most of my life. And I, I had always been self-conscious about that before sexuality was in question, but like my parents didn't sleep in the same room and that, that embarrassed me for some reason. And so I wanted intimate relationships with a guy who was doting and I doted on him. And for there to be that really, really clear, uh, like sense of affection between us. And 
I think part of it was like abandonment issues. Like I wanted someone who was like my person who was obsessed with me and was going to give me reassurance. And of course, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old guys aren't great at that. Um, but at the time I thought they'd be able to maybe step up to the plate and, and help, help out with that one. Yeah. That's a tall order for a high school kid. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. we're very ego centric at that age. Um, yeah. Yeah. Switching gears just a little bit on your Instagram, you know, as part of your bio, uh, you have born canceled. Can, can you tell yeah. me more about that? <laughs> sure. Um, it, it's a couple of things. I have always felt a little alien and like I've, I'm always at the precipice to getting it right but I never do. Like there's something divine about my circumstance that like prevents me from self-actualizing or something like that. And um, then there's also, I, you know, there's a lot of that like comic self-disparaging, like self-hatred stuff going on there. Just like, I'm already, I've canceled myself. I'm out. I don't, <laughs> If at any point anyone has any expectations of me, don't. I'm canceled. Um, and then, of course, I'm playing a little bit into cancel culture. And I feel like, especially for comedians, like someone's canceled every other day. So I'm like, why not get ahead of it and just let everyone know I already am? The <laughs> old preemptive strike. I, 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 I resonate yeah. with that. Um, and so going back to the, so going back to college and, you're using self-harm or, or, or cutting uh, as a means of coping with the inner turmoil. How does, how did therapy help you at all? I, I, I know you referenced antidepressants. Um, at what age did you start taking those? And did you feel comfortable enough to talk to your therapist about your, you know, what your mom was going through and what you were going through? Yeah. So I was, I had been put on, Prozac on and off in my late teens, but I was really bad at taking medicine. Um, like I was just one of, I was flippant about it and would never do the whole regimen. And so I, I don't know that it ever was effective. Like it was supposed to be when I was 20 was when I was in intensive outpatient. And as a part of that, you were assigned a psychiatrist that you saw once a week, in addition to the nine hours of group therapy. And since then, I have been on Prozac. And I think, obviously, I can't tell the future, but I, I have a feeling I'm a lifer. <laughs> I'm a lifer Prozac. Um, rest in peace, Carrie Fisher. I feel like she did a lot to kind of let people know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm also on Prozac for life. And you know, I don't know if you know this, but her urn after she died is a Prozac pill. It's like a metallic Prozac pill. <laughs> um, no, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I actually have like a, I have a necklace that is gold custom engraved and it says Prozac. So I really lean into this, that Prozac has done a lot for me. So um, this isn't sponsored by Prozac in any way, but I am a fan. Uh, but therapy, when I got into intensive outpatient, it was, it was specifically cognitive behavioral therapy with some mindfulness therapy. And I had never experienced that before with, where therapy had a pragmatic approach. You're experiencing X, do Y. 
in that moment, or like, here are some skills or here are some journaling techniques, or here are some ways that you can reflect in those moments. Or why don't you do this all as a group right now and see how we feel afterwards. And actually being given like packets, like work, like worksheets, like almost like I was in school. Um, and it just complete, it completely changed the locus of control for me. It gave me a new sense of control and power um, that, okay, so there's things I can do because I remember on my intake form, I forget what the question was. Um, I think it was like, what's one of your biggest fears as you enter this process? And I wrote that maybe some people are just not meant to be happy. And maybe I'm one of those people. And to, to be given skills, then you don't feel helpless or as helpless. Um, and also to be told little things like the the pathway to recovery isn't going to be linear. And it's actually been proven. Like people, like therapists and scientists have watched it time and time again. And it is, it doesn't look like this. And so if you expect it to, yeah, you're going to be really disappointed. So how do we, how do we put in guardrails and off ramps? So when you do dip, it's not as low as the last time. Um, also, I think group therapy, just the sense of community that you have, it was game changing for me that it wasn't one on one at that time that I that I was able to not feel more isolated. I dropped out of school. All of my friends were either still in college or had gone abroad. I was doing nine hours of group therapy a week. If I had just been alone, I would have felt like a crazy person, maybe. But instead, I was like, here are all these grown adults. I was the youngest person in my group therapy group and all from different walks of life. And we're all needing help. Um, so I think um, those are a couple of things that helped. And shout out to that therapist, that group therapist. I'm 27 today. I started when I was 20. That therapist is my therapist till this day. So it, please t share with us a couple of the group therapy uh, activities because mm -hmm. I, there's so many people who I, I know who are listening in right now who are maybe afraid to go into group therapy because mm -hmm. they um, one day they feel like it might not be effective Two, they don't know what group therapy really entails. And, and I think that three, um, they, they're afraid of, of sharing their stories with, with other people. So if you can give them a few of the activities that, that maybe help to bond with the other um, uh, members or that um, any of the cognitive behavioral skills that, that made you feel empowered. Yeah. So at the beginning of group therapy each day, we would do a round robin check-in and you could bring anything up. And then after you had said your piece, anybody could chime in. And so sometimes you had seen each other the day before and there wasn't as much to check in. Sometimes it had been, you know, for four days or five days, depending on what your schedule was. And sometimes you came in with like some devastating news um, or a really hard week or, you know, coming right off of a really bad panic attack or so, and you would share as much or as little as you wanted. And oftentimes what people would say is that's happened to me before, or I totally know what you're saying. 
when I was in college, I did this, blah, blah, blah. And my dad's reaction really affected me too. And so what you, what it really serves as, or at least that part for me was establishing collective experience and commonality. And I think in any community, it doesn't have to be group therapy, could be religiously, could be, you know, uh, artistic group, could be a sports team. That's a lot of it is collective experience and commonality. Um, and that's what, that's why we pursue those things, at least in part. And so that, that was always really helpful just to be given space. And also I think when you're a depressed person or like a, someone who's dealing with mental illness in any way, even when you have supportive people in your life, you feel like you're such a burden asking them to hold space for you, especially when it's a long-term thing. So when you have a place that is designated, we are holding space for this. You're not a burden. We are here to address this. You just feel some relief that like no one's rolling their eyes or like no one's going to say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps um, or say that they don't get it or that they don't believe you or anything. You know, that is just opens your heart up to be able to heal way more efficiently. I think. And then as far as some of like the grounding techniques, like some of them as simple as like, I know one of my big issues when I was really depressed when I was in group therapy was getting out of bed. Getting out of bed was like such a, such a struggle for me because if I didn't, my whole day was gone and I was in bed all day. And so it was like, really like, you know, wearing the nexus point of the decision I needed to make every day. And I almost always failed it when I was in the throes of depression. And so one skill was, um, I hear, I see, I feel, which was an exercise that I was taught to do. And so, you know, my alarm goes off. What, like, just really focus on what I hear. Is it the cars outside? Is it my roommate typing in the living room? whatever, but really fixate on, it's a grounding technique really, but really fixate on something in space and time that you can hear. And then what you feel. And then when you're, when you're in bed, you know, I feel the comfy covers. I feel the socks on my feet. I feel my feet rubbing together. Um, and then you open your eyes and I see, and you do that again. And it almost also opens up your body to coming into itself and also feeling kind of grateful. Like when you, when you fixate on like little things, I don't know, I feel overcome with gratitude because I, I feel within myself. Um, and so that was something that I still do to this day when I don't want to get out of bed to kind of wake myself up. Um, and that was something I learned in group therapy. Um, we talked a lot about shame and guilt and talked a lot about like Renee Brown and would like watch her video and then kind of like discuss it as a group, what parts stuck out to you. Um, and that was helpful. Um, well, learning which, how to, which sorry. Brene Brown was that, um, sorry to cut you off. Was it the dare to lead or Atlas of the heart or Alice of the heart is a new one, but we, it was one of her Ted talks that we actually watched about shame and, um, how like the difference between shame and guilt is like guilt. You feel like, I did something wrong. Shame. I am wrong. 
And a lot of us felt a lot of shame for either mistakes that were made while we were going through um, mental health issues or just for the mental health issues themselves. Um, also like a lot of like expectation journaling, like best case, worst case, normal case, <laughs> like, because all of one of my big issues and a lot of people who I was in group with were really good at catastrophizing. So like, okay, write out the worst case scenario. And almost always at the end of that worst case scenario, you're still alive and your life isn't ruined. Um, and I, sometimes I get to the point where I like my, my therapist gets scared because I get worst case. And I'm like, and even if I go to jail, I think I could do well in prison. <laughs> like, and he's like, okay, stop. <laughs> um, but then ideal case. And then what's the most likely case? And what if there's a, an obstacle? What, what do we do then? What is our guardrail? So really, really, really granular, but practical uh, kind of activities that we did. I know that was long winded. No, that's what we're here for. My, my, my audiences, they've heard everything I had to say. Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm listening to your vocabulary. And, you know, when you say you majored in business, it sounds more like you majored in English or literature. What, what was your business major? Management. Management. Okay. All right. <laughs> but I, I joke a lot that going to business school is the biggest mistake of my life. Just because I don't think I was put on this earth to be a, a businesswoman. You know, there's all that like boss babe energy. I'm not boss babe. <laughs> I am not her. Um, I wanted to be her or I thought I did um, because of that achievement thing in my brain. Um, and I had come from an arts family and especially my dad, he had me later in life, but like he started, he moved to New York when he was 19 and like starved and like, and he, he, he was a working artist, but it was like a really, really hard for a number of years. And he really scared me out of pursuing that almost. Like he really did not want me to become any sort of performing artist. And like Freud would have something to say about this because I remember being a little girl and him like shooting me down when I said I wanted to be an actress. And I said, well, what, what do you want me to be then? And he said, a CEO of a company. Fast forward 10 years and that's what I go to school to try to be. Um, but in high school and now, what do I love? Literature, theater, writing, all of these things that I wish I would have pursued in college. The things that like even talking about now, I feel invigorated, just saying the words. And instead I studied something that I feel was very void of all of that soul. Um, and I regret that because I think college can be like a really magical experience. And it just, it just wasn't quite for me. Yeah. I see you have a, you have a keyboard in the background. Do you, do you, uh, are you instrument, uh, instrumentally inclined? Is that the only instrument? I feel like you could play more than that keyboard. Oh, that's, I, that's a wonderful assumption. So I started playing piano when I was eight. Um, I love piano. Um, I play, I was, my piano teacher was like a piano pedagogue, like classically trained. And so that was mostly what I played. My, my favorite are like Chopin and Debussy. Um, I love the um, romantic composers. Uh, I can't play anything else. I have really, really, really bad piano stage fright. I don't know what it is. Specifically performing piano 
gives me so much anxiety. And which is, I know you are looking at me like that because you just saw me perform <laughs> for a sold out house at the Laugh Factory. So obviously it's not performance inherently, but something about it not being like, it being physically something that I'm manipulating and it not being me gets me in my head where I'm either too focused or too detached and I, I mess up and then I get really embarrassed. I never want to mess up, but yeah, like I, I love playing piano. I love as a listener jazz. I tried going to a jazz teacher for a while. I was so profoundly bad. <laughs> I was like, you know what? We don't have to be good at all the things that we're interested in. No, you know, you know what I've learned is there are some things I read this somewhere. I forget what it was, but um, this guy was talking about his meditation practice and he said that he's like some things you shouldn't share with others because it's just for you. And, mm. and so to be mindful of not giving away all the parts of yourself. And, mm. and I think that sometimes like I'm, I'm practicing the guitar right now and I'm, I'm doing it just for me. Like it's, it has mm -hmm. nothing to do with wanting to perform like stand up is my performance piece. But then I, I need something creative and magical and um, there's something meditative about playing an instrument that serves me and just for that purpose only. And I think that if mm -hmm. I did take it to the stage, it might lose that quality to now where it becomes another responsibility or obligation versus this thing that I, you know, strum when I can't sleep at night or, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also just in general, like not performance as much in the literal sense of perform, but performance in the sense of a measurement of ability. I think culturally we are so programmed where, what bucket do I fall in? How talented am I? Where do I compare to other people? And even in comedy, I, it's something, it's maybe one of my biggest areas for growth of the comparison game and the, oh, I did this, but I haven't done what that person did, or I didn't get as many laughs or whatever. So to have something where it's like, you know what, even if I'm crappy at it, it it's okay. And like giving yourself permission to be like nothing special at something, or it's okay if you are, is really liberating in this culture that I don't know if it's unique to the US or 2022 or whatever, but I think, you know, I think a lot of people will agree that we're, we're in that at this moment. Now I'm gonna be real upset if I hear you playing a piano and you sound like Mozart. I'm gonna be like, oh, she was the, <laughs> she was being humble. She was over no, there, no, no. over there like Beethoven. Bump, bump, bump. I was like, all right, I see. It was happening. Um, no, no, nothing like that. Just I, I'm, um, I'm an enthusiast more than anything. Yeah, mm. yeah. Anthony Bourdain had that as his Twitter um, uh, bio, enthusiast, and I and I I wrote that down because mm. I like that because that that really does sum up. Like I, I really get enthusiastic about about things. Um, to peel back the layers a little bit earlier, earlier on, you were talking about abandonment issues and, mm. you know, right now you're 27 and on mm -hmm. stage, I heard you talk about how you recently came out as bi or identify as bisexual. Now, mm -hmm. 
can you talk to us what that process was like for you? Because I can't imagine that that was a, a um a easy thing to come to grips with, and then to also share on stage mm-hmm. in front of a bunch of people. So, like so many people, it's certainly something that I've always known was a part of me. You know, being attracted to women. Um, I just wasn't sure what I was going to do with that information or what part of my brains I was going to allow that to occupy. Um, you know, as a, you know, in my late teens, maybe had a couple of experiences that helped inform that a little bit, but nothing that I would talk about publicly or admit, um, or anything like that. Also, and I have a joke, it's not one that I performed. But the, the reason that I didn't come out was because I couldn't let my mom know she won <laughs> because she is gay. And my whole adolescent identity was rebelling against this woman that like, you know, I think part of it was like, well, I'm not like you. I'm, I'm this straight Republican <laughs> or something like that. Um, and so that was, that was a part of it. But Honestly, what the what made the process easier was one of my best friends and I he, uh, in Southern California, an adult friend, like someone who we didn't know each other's past or anything, but we became really fast friends and were the kinds of people that like shared the most secret, uh, unflattering parts of ourselves with each other right off the bat. Like one of those people you just trust and still to this day um, trust a lot and feel very safe with and we would talk about like having like attraction for women um but more in like a philosophical sense and then she um met someone met a woman and started dating them and kind of had her own coming out process and was like you're next and we'd kind of talk about it but it's like that almost gave me a context to speak about it. And then almost like as a joke, she sent us this sexuality quiz, this like four quadrant sexuality quiz where it was like homosexual on one side, uh, heterosexual on the other side, bisexual in another quadrant and an asexual. And it was like a hundred questions that you answered. And she sent it out to all of us. And I started sending it out to all my friends, just like as a fun thing. I don't think like it's, I don't think Harvard makes it, you know, I don't know who makes it, but I don't think it's like scientifically anything, but I came out as like 50, 50, like in the bisexual quadrant fully there. A lot of my friends like came out super, super hetero. Some came out like pretty gay, like, and it was fun. But then having that quantitative thing, almost, I started just being like, well, see, I'm, I'm bi guys. And like, it almost was tongue in cheek at first. And then I just started saying it more. And um, then I went to like uh, my first pride with like a group of gay people. And like, they gave me like buy, buy flag socks. And I was like, okay, like I'm stepping into this. And then it was, you know, finally telling my sister who her best friend's lesbian, she couldn't care less. Um, And then telling my boyfriend, who is obviously not a woman, that I also am attracted to women. 
um, and, and, you know, all the questions he had and conversations we have about what that looks like. And it's interesting. I posted about it on social media and, and talked about it in jokes and stuff like that. But only recently has my mom asked me directly about it. Um, and she texted me, are you bisexual online only or IRL? <laughs> and I said, I am bisexual online and IRL. <laughs> and she said, um, her wife's name is Javilla. She goes, Javilla wants to know when we're going to the bars. And that, that kind of was that, um, which I'm grateful for. Cause I, I didn't need it to be a moment. I didn't want it to be <laughs> a moment. So, so what did that feel like? Because it, in my head, it, it kind of feels like this full circle moment or I, I don't want to say a full, I, I'm, I'm picturing like a figure eight, right? Where yeah. this is closing half the loop of where here you are saying I'm bisexual and now here your mom is inviting you into a relationship via her wife, right? Like it sounds mm -hmm. like your mom still has, a, you know, some a challenge with connecting with you directly. And so yeah. her wife is the opportunity. It's almost like um, I like romantic comedies, but like mm -hmm. as a dude, I just can't be like, I like, so like I can watch them be, through my girlfriend, you know, like, yeah, right, my girl right, want right. to go see... <laughs> You know, I'm like, I don't want to go, but since you want to go, I guess you're I like, yeah. my girlfriend loves Owen Wilson. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Yo, we got to watch Titanic a fifth time. It's killing me. But, you yeah. know, you got to take one for the team. Anyway, um, so it, it feels like like it's the it's the beginning of mm -hmm. the loop that you wanted as a, a, as a 13 year old. Does it mm -hmm. feel like that to you on some level or um, what yeah. were the emotions? Honestly, I felt relief in the fact that it wasn't an emotionally heightened moment. I, my family is so emotional that like, we like, we're too expressive. Like so many families like have the issue where like they don't express enough to each other. Like we, express too much sometimes it feels like and make our emotions each other's burden to carry or cross to bear and so I was just grateful that that moment was lighthearted because I want our relationship to be more lighthearted I don't I don't want every conversation that we have because for so long it felt like every conversation that we had was trying to win a philosophical moral premise and there wasn't any of that mother-daughter giggling or shopping or bonding or that kind of stuff and it hasn't been until my adulthood that we're getting opportunities like that and and it, I do feel glad about that an interesting component is that my mom and her wife have another daughter who's 17 years younger than me and my mom is extremely present in my sister's life, my baby sister's life, and like has this maturity and presence that she wasn't able to access for me and my other sister when 
um, for whatever reason. My sister and I talk, both talk about how our mom struggled with things like comforting us, um, soothing, words of affirmation, being present, things like that my mom had trouble with. And she's really grown into it with my baby sister. And some people ask me, like, what does that bother you? And it's quite the opposite. Like, I'm so grateful that my baby sister is getting this version of my mom. Because as an adult now, like, I feel okay. Like, I I have skills. I can cope. I'm I'm forging my own life. I'm really, really grateful to watch my mom develop that relationship with with her. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's also been a, a special part of this. Uh, you have a boyfriend now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, early on, we we're talking about your mom and that how much you wanted to feel heard and understood and validated. What does that communication look like between you and your boyfriend? Do you, do you, is that, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does okay. make sense. And it's, it's something that we sometimes honestly struggle with um, because I've come to learn that I, I, I do need a lot of communication and reassurance. And um, for lack of better words, like almost admiration, like I, I need to feel that. And um, in, in my relationship, I'm with someone who, you know, is like a Anglo-Saxon Protestant family. They're not used to that, um, you know, I'm half my family's Jewish and half my family's Mexican, both very communicative cultures not so much his background and so while we have so many similar values the same sense of humor and that that area can be a disconnect sometimes and that's something that we have to work through and you know those moments you know the classic woman trope of like well I want I don't want to tell you I don't want to have to ask you to do this for me I just want you to know you should do this I don't want to have to ask you for words of affirmation. I want you to just like, know, oh my God, she's so amazing. And I need to tell her right now. <laughs> and so it, it's kind of that. And so you have to humble yourself a little bit and say, okay, like, here's what I need. Here's what your skills are. What, what can we do to bridge the gap here? Um, and then there's ownership on my end. How do I not take offense where no offense exists or, you know, I create a narrative in my head. Oh, well, he didn't come in to see me and kiss me before he left. And so that means this and this and this and this and this. And then when he comes home by that time, um, we're five arguments deep and he has no idea. <laughs> um, uh, so what's, and, what's yeah. uh, not to cut you off, but be, because this is a, a thing in so many relationships, like you said, this is the mm -hmm. classic relationship trope. What would you say? Okay, you, you've recognized that he's going to, he might leave without uh, saying goodbye. So how do you get that need met before he walks out the door? What what would you say in hindsight? Or or do you just let it go so it is not an argument? But what, what would you say? How would you communicate that? 
Well, one, I've had to learn how to express my needs without it being an insult to the other person. <laughs> so instead of saying like, you're just, you're, you're just a cold person or like, you don't know how to emote or like turning it into an attack saying, I really need this. And I love you so much. And I just want to feel that from you. Um, or sometimes it looks like giving the person the thing that they need and sh- leading by example, which can, which requires some humility because sometimes you don't want to act a certain way until that other person deserves it. Um, and so I, I, and it's also, but it's also certain things like, like he's a very regimented person, like scheduling out connected time and scheduling out quality time where you're not allowed to, or not, you're not allowed. This is just me sounding toxic. Um, but like where we know that we have entered a contract that we both agree this is time for us to connect with each other. So being having foresight and being more intentional about it and realizing that a lot of these things don't just happen unnaturally. And then the other thing I would say is, and I'm sure you're familiar, and I think it's Harvard who did it, and it's like a longitudinal study, that the happiness study that ha- Harvard did. Um, and one of the things that they found or that they asked the participants to do was they listed a bunch of life events, like good, bad, or otherwise, like proposal, fired, this, that, and the other, and then said, put down the name of the person you would reach out to to talk talk to about this. And they found that the people who had a higher volume of different names on average were happier. And what they gleaned from that was that people who were able to seek support in all different directions had people, so they didn't rely on one person or just a couple of people to satisfy all of their emotional needs, felt more fulfilled because, and when you think about it intellectually, it seems obvious one person or two people can't give you everything. The friend I go to when I'm feeling attacked by my manager at work is not the same person that I go to when I've seen a play that has devastated me and I need to talk about it right now. And is not the same person that I call when I'm mad at my boyfriend and is not the same person that I call necessarily when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, you know, like, and realizing, and also it like relieves you a lot because it's like, I don't have to expect perfection from everybody in my life anymore. I can be okay with that. This is you and you're not, you don't have the skills or ability to, to give me this. And as an adult, it's on me to either accept it or not have you in my life. And most of the time, the, the equation lands, I accept it because I want you in my life. That was beautifully said. When you have a team, you don't need perfection from one person. I don't need you to mm-hmm. be all the things. Everybody mm-hmm. has their role to play. That's that's so beautifully said. Um, which you, I know we got to wrap up here quickly. What um, is there a book that you you talked about reading fiction? Is there something you're reading now that you felt really? Um, you, you really highlighted your experiences in life or really connected with you or, or is there a book that you've reread more than once? Is something fictional? Yeah. Well, okay. 
the first one I'll give will be like such an eye roll to so many people, I think, because it's like, it's a real doozy of a book, but it changed my life. And I go back to it all the time. And it is Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Russian literature is it for me. Like, I don't need anything else, honestly. Like, if I had to be stuck with one one set, um, they, they're just as sad as I am, but also just, like, find the hilarity in everything just as much as I do. And so it's that great uh, juxtaposition. But that was such, like, a it almost felt like a personal investigation as I read it like I saw myself in so many of the characters and so many of the dilemmas and I've read that like a lot of psychologists who came out of like the 19th century really kind of considered Dostoevsky to be like a master psychologist himself even though he didn't consider himself to be that at all um so that's that's a big one um and then I'm trying to think right, right now I'm kind of like been, I, I went into a nonfiction realm for a while right now I'm reading like lighthearted fiction, which I've never done in my life. And then, I, but then I was really realizing like, why am I not reading as much as I used to? I'm like, maybe I'm not choosing books that I enjoy. So right now I'm like a reading a coming of age story about a group of friends in New York city called the interestings. And it's not profound, but it's not, but it's good and I'm enjoying it. So um, but I would say crime and punishment is my my go-to rec. So you know what's interesting is, and, and tell me if I'm, I'm misreading this, is I, I'm detecting the same thing in, in the way you talked about the the um, the book that you're reading now uh, is the same attitude I had towards like some uh, books of lighter fiction that, because I, I also just read Crime and Punishment and uh, I'm actually... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm more in a camp of, uh, uh, was it Novikov? No, 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 what's, uh, who's the other Russian guy? The, the guy who wrote, there's Anna Karenina. Who is that? Tolstoy. Oh, Tolstoy. So yeah. I'm more in the Tolstoy camp okay. than I am in the, but, but the Dostoevsky had some poignant parts that, um, I actually had to like, I had to like join a book club to understand. I was like, what, what am I mm-hmm. reading here? This is so You can't weird. be alone with that book. You can't be you alone. Be yeah. alone. <laughs> Absolutely true. Yeah, that, that's a book that Anna Karenina. Uh, uh, like my, my my brain is still like, but um, I'm I, I realized I kind of had this nose up at lighter fare, but I realized that like if I keep reading the heavier Russian novels and those classic literatures, it's almost too much, and then yeah. I'm not enjoying it. It's almost like being in class forever. And like not allowing myself to enjoy life as you you shared. And and I think that's something that gets lost, especially on high achievers and academics is like, yes, you know, do your work, but there's a place for that and setting boundaries with that. So then we're not going to the Adderall and, you know, 36 hours. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes something that's self-defeating because then we have to drop out of school and then we're taking, you know, it becomes this whole domino effect. And so to give ourselves permission to enjoy life. That, yeah. That's that's such a powerful thing. And um, I, I can see you're radiating um, enjoyment right now. And uh, just even the vibe of your place, like you guys can't see it, but I'm just like, ah, oh, it has a nice peaceful. And the fact that you like chill Chopin, that's my joint right there. I listen to that when mm. I need, oh, that's my playlist. Do you have a playlist that mm. you go to? Uh, I have. 
a, like a jazz playlist that's like ever growing. That's just instrumental jazz. I love jazz, new jazz, old jazz, bop, uh, all of it. So I'm, a, I, I really like my own personal curated jazz playlist, but I also sometimes, um, go down like a Chopin nocturne playlist too. Is there, is there anything about your journey that you haven't shared that you want to share with the listeners? Uh, any skills that you learned? We talked about journaling. We've talked about, uh, you know, sharing in, in, a, in a, a space where it, it is a collective experience that, you know, you could mm-hmm. have. Um, any dietary changes, any social changes, any? Um right around the time that I started recovering, I got really into running, which I have said, I am not an athlete. I am not good at running. It is not comfortable, but I got into it because it's a really low barrier way to like move your body and you don't need a gym or you don't need, you don't need it. You just need shoes really. Um, and so running has helped me quite a bit. Um, but yeah, also just finding, avocations that I love and giving myself permission to do them, whether it's well or not, but yeah. Wonderful. Last question. Um, and I ask this of all my guests, cause I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before mm-hmm. you kill yourself. What would you say to them? I would say that you're not crazy for thinking life is crazy. And I know it sometimes feels random um, and unexplainable, but in all of this chaos, there are such nuggets of inspiration and deep connection. And we just have to sometimes get through the muck to find it, but they're always worth it. And there, there's always another one around the corner. So, um, you know, keep looking forward to that. Where can people find you? Um, I am on Instagram at the underscore Sarah RW. Um, I'm on TikTok as sociopath cutie. (laughs) And, um, you can see me all around, you know, San Diego, Southern California performing stand-up comedy, Sarah RW. Love it. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help where you call on the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or any of the other international phone numbers. If you're in Germany, Budapest, Mexico, Sri Lanka, wherever you are in the world, there are suicide hotlines available for you. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Leo. This was great.